Hi, my name's Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. It's not often I get a chance to talk to an American general. Okay, I've never had a chance to talk to an American general. I have interviewed a Canadian general, General Lewis McKenzie, who told me armies need soldiers that don't know much about history or the world, because if they did, they wouldn't want to go off to war to kill or be killed. We'll be talking about the recruitment of soldiers for the U.S. Armed Forces today, including the debate over the all-volunteer army. My guest wants to return to the draft. First, we will assess what we should expect from a Biden-Harris foreign policy and what we've seen so far from Trump, especially the growing confrontation with China. Now joining us is Major General Dennis Leitch, retired from the United States Army in 2006 after more than 35 years of service. His last assignment was commander of the 94th Regional Readiness Command at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, where he commanded all Army Reserve soldiers in the six New England states. For the last 14 consecutive years of his career, he served in command positions. He has served in Iraq, Kuwait, Germany, and the Netherlands, and Honduras. He's a graduate of the Army War College, the Command and General Staff College, and the National Security Management Program. He's also completed postgraduate studies in national and international security at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. His military awards include the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, and the Meritorious Service Medal. He currently serves as the director of the Patriots Program at Ohio Dominican University and is the author of the book Skin in the Game, Poor Kids and Patriots. Major General Leitch opposed the Iraq War while he was still in active service. Welcome, Major General. Great to be with you. And if it's okay, can I call you Dennis? I'm retired now, so go ahead. Whatever you feel most comfortable with. Okay, so before we get into some of the more current issues, uh, talk about your experience when you were serving as a general at the time, I believe, and you opposed the Iraq War publicly and got into quite a confrontation with the Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld. Why did you speak out publicly when you were in the service and why did you oppose the war? Well, when you say publicly, I spoke out in an open military forum, which was um, unheard of at that time. I thought that the um, war in Iraq was ill-advised and uh, became a war not necessarily that uh, we could win, but um, I thought that the the predicate for the war was set years ago by uh, Rumsfeld, Cheney, and Wolfowitz, and it was ill-advised. We had uh, Saddam Hussein pretty much bottled up, and whether we won or lost the war, uh, we, we opened up the uh, uh, Middle East for Iranian influence. So I thought it was a bad uh, move on our part. And it, um, uh, in fact, did open up uh, Iran to greater influence, both in Iraq and other parts of the Middle East. When you say the predicate for the war was established before, are you talking about their involvement in this project for a new American century and the whole strategy of regime change? I think the regime change and also the uh, the first Gulf War, I think there was some... Uh, 
lingering um, uh, sense among uh, Wolfowitz and Cheney and uh, Rumsfeld that uh, we should have finished the job, notwithstanding the public statements that Cheney made. And um, I think that uh, the the Bush administration was uh, misserved by Cheney, Wolfowitz, and uh, others, Rumsfeld primarily, and also that uh, Condi Rice failed in her role as the national security advisor in being an honest broker of alternatives and the facts. What was the forum exactly? Uh, the forum was a uh, meeting among general officers preparing for the uh, invasion of Iraq. And what consequences did you suffer as a result of speaking out in this open forum? The consequences I served, I, I, I suffered, were um, some um, uh, light reprimands, but uh, I was able to continue to serve and serve until 2006, until I ran into another disagreement with the uh, way that we handled the Tillman incident in Afghanistan and um, was told shortly thereafter that I was being retired. What was the conflict there? Well, I think that uh, it was obvious to me that we were deceiving the, ourselves and the American people and lied about the uh, friendly fire incident around uh, Tillman. And my experience is that these sorts of things, ultimately, the truth comes out, and it did. And I think it was an embarrassment to the uh, to the military as a whole that we lied, we tried to lie to the American people about what happened with Pat Tillman. All right, let's jump to the current situation. First of all, what is your assessment of Trump in terms of foreign policy and in terms of the massive increase in the military budget. He seems to have a particular interest in pursuing nuclear weapons. Well, first of all, um, I don't think he has a foreign policy or a military policy. I think that uh, Trump's approach to both of these things is completely transactional. And uh, he has no sense of history. And it um, creates problems not only for us, but for our allies and reinforces the uh, policies of uh, Erdogan, Putin, and others, I, I think it's been a disaster across the board. There are no foreign policy successes, either militarily or economically, that I can identify in the Trump administration. Well, his foreign policy seems to revolve around increasing the contradiction or tensions with China. If you go back to his advisor, Bannon, who apparently is still in his ear, there's a kind of strategy. It seems to revolve around what Bannon calls the defense of Western civilization. And no, Trump doesn't openly often talk that way. Although when he got inaugurated, he came pretty close to talking that way. But it does seem to be a war on Islam. And now even more focused on China. And Bannon's even talked about this being a bloody struggle. He's called for military confrontation in the South China. See, I don't know how much Trump buys into this or how much the current military command supports this, but when they tried to justify the military budget in front of the congressional committee, the acting secretary of defense said there's three words that justify why there's a need for such a big military budget. And the three words were China, China, and China. That seems to be the strategy. So what they want is tension. So are you saying what they want is tension to justify arms purchases? Well, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, the Defense Department needs a bad guy the, uh, and a threat. The, the, the worst thing that ever happened to the Defense Department in the Pentagon budget was the demise of the Soviet Union. Uh, the fear mongering that goes on uh, among the um, uh, senior people at the Pentagon is uh, something that, that supports the, the um, 
military industrial complex that's gone on for decades. And I think that war with China um, would be a, a real disaster. I, I, I just can't see what would cause the United States to go to war with China, uh, even even Taiwan. Uh, you know, you have to wonder, I often do, uh, whether the United States would go to war over China's invasion of Taiwan, where we, we really don't have a uh, mutual defense treaty with Taiwan, a formal media, uh, mutual defense treaty. I just don't see a war with China in the foreseeable future. And when you look at Biden and now Harris, certainly Biden, he seems to have bought into this concept as well. Absolutely. His rhetoric on China is like he's trying to outflank Trump from the right and be even more aggressive in his language about China than Trump has been. You see, do you see this as just a tactical position in terms of the elections, or is it simply for the same reasons? He has his own reasons for wanting the military-industrial complex on his side. And I think when we talk about the military-industrial complex, you can't separate that from Wall Street, because when you look at who actually owns the military-industrial complex, it's primarily financial institutions, institutional investors like Vanguard and BlackRock and state Street and a bunch of others, and the way ownership has become so concentrated in the hands of finance. So Biden doesn't want to piss off finance or the arms manufacturers. Will he have a different attitude towards China? I think it'll be a, a more nuanced attitude toward China. I think that um, uh, it'll be dictated a lot by the uh, uh, who is the Secretary of State. And um, I'll go out on a limb right now. I know you haven't asked, but um, my bet you heard it first here is that Susan Rice will be the uh, Secretary of State in a uh, Biden uh, administration. Yeah, we've been speculating that if she didn't get the VP, she'd get Secretary of State. What do you think of her as Secretary of State? I, I think it'll be a fine choice. I think she's uh, eminently qualified. I think that the um, Senate confirmation will be the last chance the Republicans have to bring up Benghazi. It'll come up. It'll be a um, spirited discussion, but she'll be confirmed by the Senate and she'll be the Secretary of State. Well, you say a fine choice, but she seems to represent the more militaristic, hawkish wing of the Democratic Party. She apparently was very much in favor of the intervention in Libya. She supported the Iraq war. She, I don't know if she's ever thought about a potential war she didn't want to wage. I think that um, the, the wars that she supported or the military um, uh, initiatives that she supported were, were somewhat different than a war with China. I mean, a, a war with China is not a uh, um, walk in the park, as uh, some people would think. Although, you know, when we talk about walks in the park, um, the United States, uh, notwithstanding all of the money that we spend, we spend more than the next eight nations in the world combined on quote unquote defense. But we've only won one war since World War II, that being the first Gulf War. But, you know, we, we've had uh, we, we've had a, a myth around the U.S. military power. And, um, you know, we talk about winning but uh, no football coach in the United States could keep his or her his job <clears throat> with, the, with the one loss record that the U.S. military has had since World War II. 
I think that I think that a war with China would be viewed a lot differently than uh, than than other military exercises that uh, the United States has, has uh, inserted itself into. I'm not suggesting Susan Rice would actually want to support a, a war with China. I can't believe anybody with any modicum of rationality would. But she has a serious record of supporting American interventionism and a kind of reckless foreign policy, and Libya being one of the worst examples. It's not only that they helped destroy that country. And and it was well known that was a likely outcome of the intervention. Apparently, Obama and Biden as well was against it. Biden apparently argued against the Libya intervention and lost that argument. And Obama went along reluctantly, mostly driven by Hillary Clinton and Susan Rice. Doesn't that concern you that the Libyan situation could be repeated? I, I, I think that... Uh, uh People learn some lessons. Uh, I would hope that people learn some lessons, uh, especially with the uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, Bob Gates and others have uh, spoken out and said that uh, we've we've learned some lessons about intervention in the Middle East, and uh, I, I think that um, there will be a more nuanced uh, um, approach. The other thing that I think will drive it is that um, the the defense budget will be under some pressure. With regard to physical support, I mean, we, we have a U.S. Def, uh, uh, budget that is running at about a 20 percent deficit and will be at about a 30, $30 billion dollar or trillion dollar debt by the end of this administration. And uh, there are going to be physical constraints on the ability to finance uh, not only the military budget itself, but some constraints with regard to military interventions. And what can you make of Harris's positions on foreign policy? I know she's mostly identified with domestic issues. I, I think that um, the foreign policy in the Biden-Harris uh, administration will be largely driven by um, Joe Biden and uh, some of his uh, uh, previous cohorts in uh, foreign policy. I think Les Gelb will play a role in the uh, Biden foreign policy and uh, Richard Haas and a few others in, in addition to Susan Rice. You know, Biden supported the Iraq war, too. It seems that Biden's instincts are to go where the military industrial complex wants to go. I don't think the military industrial complex wants a war with China. I think it is what you said. They want tension. They want almost war because almost war is good for business. I don't think any of them. I've talked to Larry Wilkerson a few times. He says whenever he's been involved in war games, they try to game out what would happen with a war with China. It always ends up in nuclear war, and they had to stop the war games. And while I think there's a certain kind of pragmatic rationality with Biden that's not with Trump, doesn't it concern you that he has a history of supporting the Iraq war and generally going along with that kind of hawkish policy? Yeah, it does concern me, but I think the, the Iraq war has chastened a lot of people. I, it's my belief that it has, whether it, uh, whether it has or not. Will be borne out. You know, we thought that the uh, Vietnam War chastened a lot of uh, thought in the um, uh, geopolitics of the United States, but I, I think the Iraq War um, and Afghanistan, still ongoing, has uh, changed some thinking and um, will make people think a little bit more deeply about U.S. interventions in the future. What do you make of the current military command? It's interesting. A couple of months ago, I guess now, when Trump walked across the street and held the Bible in front of the church and the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was with him and later actually apologized for doing it. 
where are we in terms of the military commanders and right-wing politics? We know there's been a lot of influence of the right-wing evangelical church. And I say right-wing evangelicals because not all evangelicals are right-wing. Many are. But they have a lot of influence in the army and also right-wing Catholicism in the army and very much at the levels of top command. How might that help decide how the military might play out, especially, you know, there's a lot of conjecture here if Trump doesn't want to go and loses the election. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, first of all, you made reference to the evangelicals in the military. And um, I've said for a number of years that the uh, military chaplaincy has been hijacked by the evangelicals. Uh, it's it's unfortunate. We had uh Senior people in the military, General Boykin in particular, and some others who uh, facilitated that and, and advanced it, much to the chagrin of many people in the military. I think that um, we 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 put military leaders on a pedestal. Um, I, I refer to many of them as senior uniform bureaucrats, not leaders. When you look at the uh, the culling out process, uh, independent thinkers are not uh, appreciated. In most cases, commanders and senior people are looking for affirmation, not information, and uh, it creates a, uh, a kind of echo chamber that uh, is not healthy for the military and for wise decision making. I don't know that Biden's going to be able to resist any of this, but if he asked you what should be the policy towards Russia and China, what would you say? I think we need to, to continue to have a presence in the uh, South China Sea and uh, the, the Pacific. I think one of the things we need to recognize is that China is a rising power. And we need to look at uh, China not as a uh, competitor or necessarily as a threat, but just as we have the uh, Monroe Doctrine in the United States, we have spheres of influence. And I think that um, we, we've walked away from many opportunities to um, uh, advance that sphere of influence. We walked away from the TPP, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, early in the Trump administration. I don't think we'll have a chance to recover that. But we have to recognize that uh, China is a rising power and uh, we can cooperate with them and um, uh, share the, uh, the center stage in world uh, geopolitics or we can um, uh, continue to go down this path. But I think that the, you have a, a rising power and a declining power. I'm, I'm of the opinion that uh, the United States in many fronts is a declining power. So you're saying there should be a reassessment. Of, of the attitude towards China. And, and obviously there's got to be a way to be a competitor with China uh, without going to war with China. Um, I mean, European Union competes with the United States in a lot of places, but at least as far as we can see, there's, there's not the same kind of military tensions with the EU. You know, they're called allies. Um, but the... You say the Americans, U.S. should keep a presence in the South China Sea. Isn't that provocative? I mean, why should they? How would the United States like China having a, a presence in the Caribbean? Well, I think that's a legitimate point. And I brought up the Monroe Doctrine before, and I think that the uh, – the Chinese realize that um, the uh, U.S. has interest in, in opening sea in, in um, freedom of navigation. And, um, you know, there's a, a different set of um, 
criterion, but I think that there will be a reassessment of not only the Chinese-U.S. Uh, relations, but also in the in the Biden administration, a reassessment of uh, with Russia and also with Israel and uh, also Saudi Arabia. Uh, Gorbachev was promised by uh, Bill Clinton that NATO would never come up to their knocking on their doors in Eastern Europe, which in fact NATO did exactly that and expanded. Um, does isn't it there's some onus on the United States to not create this both in terms of uh, Russia and China? You know, Obama had the Asian pivot, which was about creating a kind of uh, block or supposed military encirclement of China. There's a lot of the Russians certainly think there's a, an attempt at a kind of encirclement. Uh, and, and it's kind of preposterous, I think, to think that the Russians have any intention of marching troops west. I mean, I don't think they ever did, frankly, even going back to post-World War II. Uh, or China. I mean, the, the, especially with China, the competition's commercial. And exactly. uh, it's not and and so why aren't they unless it goes back to what you said in the beginning this is just about rationale for a lot of arms purchases yeah they, we we need bad guys uh but you know the the us has been duplicitous in its uh foreign policy going back to the to the native americans I mean, we 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 started breaking treaties and uh, uh lying with the uh with the uh, Native Americans, and we've continued to do it uh, and justified it with the exceptional nation and uh, manifest destiny ra rationalizations. But uh, the fact is that that we've um, we've created a lot of the issues that we're confronted with and contributed to the uh, uh, uncertainty by our own actions. I've often thought the only real way to have a serious change in U.S. foreign policy is to take the profit motive out of arms manufacturing. Actually turn Lockheed and Boeing and Raytheon, turn them into public utilities. And uh, yes, there needs to be some kind of defensive army. And yes, there needs to be some kind of weapons. But not driven by a for-profit uh, motivation, because as long as it is, and as long as there's so much money kicking around to uh, fund politicians, uh, both their uh, political uh, fundraising and and then military leaders who go like a revolving door between these arms manufacturing and, and serving in the leadership of the armed forces, um, I mean, as long as it's all really driven by money making, there's going to be a foreign policy that reflects that. W would you support that? Essentially making these publicly owned. Well, it's an interesting concept, but I, um, you know, it's, uh, it um, flies in the face of uh, a number of issues. And, and um, it's an interesting concept, but I, I think that there is uh, it's so deeply embedded in our in our psyche and our our systems that uh, it would be difficult to do, um, but it's uh, it, it would be a step in the right direction, as would be the um, uh, uh, reassessment of how we man the military. The nuclear war strategy has hardly changed since the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which many historians believe was quite unnecessary to end the war. And the uh, new expenditure in nuclear weapons, the, the new nuclear weapons 
arms race, uh, the fact that there's still a hair trigger, the fact that the uh, possibilities for accidental nuclear war are, are as high as they ever were, if not even higher. Um, what 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 drives this this nuclear war strategy? Because it, it's, it seems like a crazy risk, even if it's about money making. At least the rest of the money making in the military budget doesn't end most life on Earth. Uh, the, you know, for the sake of, of commercial interest, they're risking the apocalypse. And are they not aware of this? Well, the, the nuclear genie is hard to put back in the bottle. Uh, and uh, it's a matter of trust among nations. But um, uh, I think that the uh, the uh, the possibility of, of complete nuclear disarmament is uh, is is very unlikely. I think that that. Um, the, the, the big challenge that the Biden administration will have or the big opportunity is not only with the, um, the, the reassessment of a nuclear posture, but also uh, reassessing our, our involvement in uh, climate change and, and protecting the environment. But uh, I think the nuclear genie is hard to put back in the bottle. Yeah, I, like people like Dan Ellsberg. Uh, we, we kind of agree with you in a sense, like Ellsberg doesn't call for the elimination of nuclear weapons. I mean, he does in a sense, but he doesn't think that's doable. But if, if it's really just about deterrence, there could be way, way less nuclear weapons. I mean, instead oh, yeah. of thousands, yeah. there could be, you know, if every, you know, if there were 10 or 20 is, is legitimate deterrence. Apparently the Chinese only have, what is it? People think maybe a couple hundred compared to thousands uh, in Russian Americans. Uh, and, and a lot of senior military people and former political leaders and so on and so on have called for this, but there's an irrationality when it comes to, to the nuclear strategy that even surpasses the insanity of the rest of the military strategy. Winston Churchill said shortly after World War II that uh, the 10th or 20th uh, nuclear device only makes the rubble bounce. <laughs> and he didn't even know about nuclear winter. Yeah. You know these generals. You've socialized with them. You must have had many of them were your friends. What is in their heads? That they they got to know they're playing with, a, like I said, with the apocalypse. And, and they, how do they deal with that in their own hand, uh, psychology? I don't think that uh, I, 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 that many have um, given a great deal of thought to the the consequence. I think we we have lulled ourselves into thinking that we've gone seventy five years now without uh, anyone else using a nuclear weapon, and the prospect of our using it is uh, is remote. But I'll tell you that that I personally and, and a number of other people have been deeply concerned about uh, Donald Trump having his thumb on the nuclear codes. I mean, this is um, as, as scary as his day to day antics might be. Uh, the fact that this man has his uh, thumb on the nuclear codes is is one of the most frightening things that I think um, uh, I, I deal with every day. And most people don't realize that there is no buffer, no no structural buffer between his command and the the detonation of a nuclear weapon in in um, in anger. Your book, uh, Skin in the Game. 
calls for the reinstitution of, of the draft. I mean, there, in fact, there is a kind of process in place that never went away. Uh, men have to register for the draft at 18. I, I don't think women do yet, even though there's been a lot of conversation about that. So it wouldn't take much to reinstitute the draft because people have to sign up, uh, register for selective service. But that being said, not many people want it. You're one of the few calling for it. And why is that? Let me correct your, your assessment just a little bit. Um, I, I call for the uh, national di- effect-based national dialogue as to whether the all-volunteer force is working or will work in the future based on fairness, efficiency, and sustainability, and also call into question whether the all-volunteer force in the United States contributes to the civil-military gap in the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. And I think that um, the the predicate question is, is the all-volunteer force working based on those criteria? And your conclusion is? Absolutely not. And the alternative is? The alternative is uh, I I lay out an alternative that uh, in my book uh, that says that uh, we would have a uh, fair across-the-board lottery-based draft of men and women, no exemptions, no deferments, with three options. The first one is that uh, those few who are selected, and and it would be a relatively small number of uh, 18 to 20 year olds who would be selected for uh, service, um, would have one of three options to go on active duty in the Army or the Marine Corps for two years after basic and AIT, to go into the reserve components for six years after basic and AIT, and if they were mobilized and deployed into a war zone one time during that six-year period, their military obligation is complete. And if someone is drafted and wants to go to college, that's fine. We encourage them to do it, but they'd be an ROTC. And if they fail to gain the commission and meet the requirements for commissioning, they'd revert to option one or two. And I should point out that uh, there would still be a lot of people who volunteer uh, to serve in the military and uh, a relatively small number of people would be required to uh, serve uh, as part of a draft. And why do you think this would change U.S. foreign policy? Well, you know, if you if you think about it uh, and just look at the uh, militarization of U.S. foreign policy, I often ask audiences when I speak on the subject, if if we had in, invoked a uh, that that concept in 2005, how long would we have stayed in Afghanistan or in Iraq? And if we had a draft, would we have ever gone into Iraq in the first place? And most rarely does anyone raise their hand and say yes or they that we would have stayed as long as we did. And that's because the large part of the opposition to the war in Vietnam was because there was a draft. So yeah. many so many American families were affected yeah. by it. Well, and not only that, but it's it's awfully unfair. I mean, when you when you look at it today, uh, we are offering forty thousand dollar enlistment bonuses to eighteen and nineteen year olds that are disproportionately attractive to the lower socioeconomic classes and irrelevant to the first socioeconomic class. So those decision makers at the top echelons of the government and um, uh, uh, business have no skin in the game. It's not their children and grandchildren who will fight and die, but it's the poor kids and patriots from the uh, hinterlands who who will pay the price. 
you know, in, in, um, I don't think it's the kids of the rich on the whole that are going into the armed forces. No, they're not at all. But, but there, it is about what, about 20% of families with an income over $65,000 go. Now that's not that much money, actually, if you're at the lower end of this scale, uh, I guess something like three quarters of the people that are volunteering come from, Homes that make less than sixty thousand, sixty-five thousand, and if yeah, from the third and fourth socioeconomic quintiles, and the first socioeconomic quintile is absolutely a wall. The 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 inequality argument. There's an interesting counter argument to that. And, uh, I was reading uh, something by a, a guy who's sort of a campaigner uh, against the draft. His name is uh, Hasbrook. Uh, he, he makes he makes the point that there are millions of people now who don't register. And that the uh, penalty for not registering is purely financial. And so wealthy people can simply, kids can simply not register and then pay the fine. And he says, you know, if, if that's the case, then it, it, the system winds up de facto still being a poverty draft because, you know, people that can't afford the fines are the ones that are going to wind up going. Well, the, uh, the the fact is that you have to put some teeth. I mean, the, the, the whole concept is skewed right now because there there is no draft. There is no possibility. But the whole concept would have to have some teeth in it. Well, that means there'd have to be, what, prison term for not registering? Well, I... Um, I, I propose that uh, our prisons are already overpopulated. So what I would do, you know, what I propose is that if you are drafted and uh, you refuse to serve, you give up your, your right to any government benefits, you give up your right to vote. And for six years, you report to your local um, county jail uh uh, when the local National Guard unit is drilling and you serve that time and you pay for your meals for the weekend that you're there. It's a matter of uh, the, the scarlet letter being put on your forehead. And, and the objective here is, is to make it the process fairer or to try to affect U.S. foreign policy? Both. If we had a fairer process, we'd have a, a more uh, a more circumspect foreign policy. And the the other thing is that that there are some great inefficiencies in the system. I mean, we're we're we have uh, recruiters now. You know, there there are ten thousand nine hundred army recruiters spread out over the United States. Ten thousand nine hundred of the best NCOs and officers in the military are charged with chasing uh, young kids around the city streets of Baltimore, the country roads of uh, Kentucky to get someone to join the military. Uh, we, when, we, when we invaded Iraq, we had far too few, far too much war and not enough warriors. So we did a lot of things like uh, multiple deployments with no dwell time. We used prescription psychotropic drugs to deal with uh, uh, emotional and psychological issues that soldiers had. We paid unprecedented uh, enlistment, re-enlistment bonuses. There are, there are great inefficiencies that, that are created by the uh, all-volunteer force also. If you, if you look at the, the example of Vietnam, even though the draft certainly helped inspire a lot of opposition to the war, it didn't stop the war from starting. It didn't start stop the war from expanding. And the fact that there were draft dodgers and people going in and burning draft cards, and in fact, a large opposition to the draft itself developed, um, 
the majority of American public opinion actually supported the war. And, and I know uh, a lot of, you know, the history is written that it was the opposition to the war that ended the war. It was only a factor. Really what ended the war is it just became so untenable for the U.S. military to have so many losses uh, on the battlefield that they, you know, they really had to, to end it. Um, and, and uh, yes, it was becoming a political quagmire domestically as well. So while, while the draft would be a, a factor involving people that might oppose an Iraq war, for an exa example, um, I don't know that it would stop it uh, or that the majority of American public opinion would, would be against the war uh, just because of the draft. Uh, I don't think Vietnam actually shows that. Well, that's why I say um, it, it's uh, I advocate for a fact based national dialogue about whether the all volunteer force is working based on fairness, efficiency and sustainability and whether it does, in fact, contribute to the civil military gap and the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. Um, I think it's it's you know, we had two things happen in 1973 in the United States, one of which um, uh, is debated and uh, uh, litigated and argued about every day. The other one goes along, not not questioned or not tested. The first one is Roe versus Wade. And the second one is the all volunteer force. You know, we've, we've never questioned, never examined it. And uh, I think there's a case to be made that uh, it does, in fact, it is unfair, it is unsustainable, and it is inefficient. Would you would, would you support, I, I asked my nephew about this, who's, uh, I guess he's about 20 now. Um, and his he was very much against this because he's against any thought that he could be forced to go to war. Yeah. Because uh, he doesn't agree with the wars that have been conducted by the United States. Right. Which is exactly my point. Yeah, but he might have to go. A lot of people didn't want to go, and they wound up going. A lot of people that went to Vietnam. And if you get enough of them, we don't we don't in, get involved in we don't initiate dumb wars, and we don't uh, they don't go on for eighteen years like Afghanistan. Maybe, um, like I say, I think it's. I know you're calling for a debate. I think it's it's it's, it's a little murky where it would end up because, uh, like for example, after nine eleven. Um, the American public opinion was very much in support of going into Afghanistan. And if there had been a, a, a draft of, and uh, in fact, volunteering went up after 9-11. A lot of people volunteered because they wanted to go fight in Afghanistan because they didn't understand what led up to 9-11 and uh, didn't understand what it meant to go into Afghanistan to overthrow the government versus going after Al-Qaeda and so on. Um, you know, if you had another kind of terrorist attack, uh, real or staged, um, and there was a draft, uh, there, who knows that that draft would actually stop the, 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 that war? Yeah, that, that enthusiasm for military volunteerism lasted about six months after 9-11. I, I get that. But if there'd been a draft, uh, I, I'm not so sure that there wouldn't have been tremendous pressure on kids to go, even if they didn't want to go. Um, I, 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 what I guess what I'm saying is it's kind of a way, instead of just arguing about what should happen in terms of foreign policy and what should happen in terms of the military-industrial complex, um, 
the uh, a draft would force a lot of kids to go fight. Even like I say, go back to Vietnam, there was tremendous opposition and still thousands of kids wound up having to go or go to jail. And many did go to jail. The, the other thing is that the, um, the Vietnam draft was a very unfair draft. I mean, we had all of the, the college deferments. We had uh, other deferments. It was very easy to, be, uh, to get out of that draft. We remember I said a fair lottery-based draft, no exemptions, no deferments. The ROTC doesn't create a kind of deferment in the sense that wealthy kids can get to college, wealthy kids could go to our ROTC, wealthy kids might even be able to kind of put some pressure on getting commissioned and dragging it out and so on. Well, I think that uh, that what would happen is that we would have a higher quality of ROTC cadet in the uh, in the system because you would have to uh, compete for those positions. And uh, my sense is that in a lot of cases, we have, I see a deteriorating uh, uh, quality of ROTC cadets in the uh, US military system. They'd have to compete there. There'd still only be so many positions available. Quality would increase dramatically. Well, let's go back to the big picture. Um, in terms of what you know of the military command, and the, the the Pentagon at the senior levels. How aware are they of how dangerous a moment this is? And, and I'm talking climate. Uh, and, uh, they seem to be blind to the issue of nuclear. So, but in terms of climate and the, the pandemic causing such deep economic crisis, the geopolitical consequences of this are, are likely to be serious. Uh, looking ahead in terms of climate, the potential for migration from the south to the north over the next 10, 20, 30 years, it's, it's going to be enormous. Uh, whole sections, just take this hemisphere, whole sections of South America are going to be unlivable. And in other parts of the world, sections of Africa, sections of Asia, Bangladesh, I mean, there's going to be millions and millions of people who have to head north. Uh, of course, who, know, who knows how long north will be livable, but uh, certainly longer. Uh, I know the Pentagon has talked, has papers about this. There's been, you know, it's not like they're unaware of climate as a national security threat. But they've sure been quiet during this Trump presidency that's done nothing about it. And it, it, I think at one point there was a Pentagon paper that actually, not, not the Ellsberg one, uh, a Pentagon document of some kind that even said climate was perhaps the greatest national security threat. Uh, do, do, they, do they not get this? No, I think, I think they do get it. Um, I, there's a book out now entitled, and I forget the author's name, called um, uh, All Hell Breaking Loose. And it talks about the, um, the military um, uh, implications of climate change in a number of uh, realms with uh, migration, state failures, and um, even the thing of, of um, the rising seas and the impact it has on places like Norfolk and other U.S. bases. So there's an awareness in the, uh, in the Pentagon, but I think that the um, – uh, voice is muted because of the uh, Trump administration's um, disdain for those sorts of scientific um, uh, findings, and, uh, uh, and and less than until there's a, an administration that is more amenable to uh, open dialogue about it, the, the Pentagon will continue to be somewhat muted. But 
there's a, there's an awareness inside the Pentagon that uh, climate uh, implications will, will affect their operations and their missions. But not more. I mean, it's really, it's an existential threat to the society. Absolutely. But I guess at these levels, uh, it's all about your career. And if speaking out ain't good for your career, I guess you don't say much. No, no. Uh, you know, the, uh, we've seen that any number of places and, uh, you know, uh, outspoken, um, um, Lieutenant, <laughs> Lieutenant colonels and colonels never make it past Lieutenant Colonel or Colonel. So just to end, how dangerous a moment are we in? I think we're in a very dangerous moment. I think these next, uh, few months, I am very optimistic that, uh, we'll see a Biden administration in January of next year, but the, uh, um, I, I'm shocked that we've made it this far without, um, even greater problems than we've had, uh, to this point, but I, I'm very concerned about the next several months. Because what, what concerns you? What do you think could happen? Well, uh, I, I think it, it's, uh, Donald Trump is, uh, very unpredictable in terms of how, what he might do. You know, will we see a wag the dog, um, uh, attempt to, uh, rally around him. And might that be Iran? It could be, could be Iran, uh, or, or some other place, but, uh, Iran is the likely candidate. Um, and uh, I, I think that we're, we're going to see a, a real test, perhaps, of the, uh, the uh, stability of the, the constitutional transit, peaceful transition of power. And if there is a test, where do you think the military leadership will come down? Because in most countries, it does come down to what the military wants. Yeah, I, I think that the, um, the um, uh, events at Lafayette Square on June 1st, uh, or the, the early part of June, I think it was the first when, uh, Milley, uh, stepped outside of the, the, his role as the, uh, chairman of the joint chiefs and then subsequently uh, publicly apologized. I think that was a, uh, that, that was really a blessing in disguise because I think that, um, the military realizes that they may be, uh, asked to play a role in that. And I think that the military is going to reject that role. It's always bewildered me that Americans can't get that there's something completely wrong with going abroad to defend the American way when the American way is mostly working class kids go abroad to fight and die and rich kids don't, meaning the American way is working class and poor kids die and other people get rich out of war. And that is the American way that they're fighting for. Yeah, you know, when you when you look at this, there's a history of this. In 1863, either one or three, at the beginning of the, uh, during the, during the Civil War, uh, the, the, there was a provision in the Union draft law that, that provided for substitution and commutation whereby a draftee could pay $300 to have someone go in his place. And most people in the United States think about that and they say, gee, that's not right. But in 2007, 70% of those who joined the U.S. Army during the height of the Iraq War received a bonus of $17,000 on average. If you take $300 in 1863 and run it out at an inflation rate of 3%, it comes out to $19,000 in 2007. 
So what's the difference between the two? The only difference is that in 2000, in 1863, the draftee paid, wrote a check out of his own account. In 2007, the, the U.S. borrowed the money from China and laundered it through the Defense Department. But the fact is that the, the moral issue is still the same. It was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Major General Dennis Leach. Great to be with you. I look forward to seeing you again. Good. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.